All the Cool Parts podcast is brought to you by classical guitar luthier Tomas Barobia, maker of the cutting-edge triple-core composite top classical guitar. Powerful volume, world-class tone, and exceptional playability all in one guitar. For more information and free sound samples, visit his website at www.latticeguitar.com. This is All the Cool Parts number 22 for December 3rd, 2010. Hey everybody, welcome back to All the Cool Parts Podcast, number 22. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and on this week's episode, we're going to have a very special interview with composer and musician David T. Little, and we're going to talk about the recent release of his group that he formed, um, and uh, they had just released this CD last month in November of 2010 called Sweet Light Crude, um, titled after his own composition of the same name. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about the rest of the composers that are on this disc. And David and Newspeak and, and the other musicians and composers that are associated with this are part of a new generation and a new movement in classical music. This movement being spearheaded by young hip, forward-looking composers and performers that are firmly grounded in both the classical music tradition and the rock and pop music tradition. And um, they are fusing these two things to create something entirely new for this century. And so I won't make this introduction too long because I think we pretty much cover all this stuff um, during the interview. So let's just get on with the interview and the music. We are here today with composer David T. Little, and uh, he is founder, is that right, of Newspeak? Uh, yeah, founding artistic director is my official title. Okay, and um, also percussionist with that group. And um, let's just uh, talk a little bit about the formation of your group, Newspeak. Right. Um, how you uh, came up with the idea and uh, sort of went about forming this group of people. Sure. Well, it was a long, it's been a long path for me with the group. Uh, and over the years, it's gone through a lot of different uh, sort of philosophical as well as musical changes. Uh, originally, the group was founded originally in 2002 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when I was uh, a graduate student at the University of Michigan. And it was a trio, originally, of all improvised music. Bass clarinet, played by Jason Stein, and violin, played by Regina Sadowski, and then I played drum set. Uh, this, for me, was did a couple things. It, one, got me back into playing. I had been a percussion major as an undergraduate, but after a really unpleasant experience with my teacher, I quit entirely. I just decided I was never going to play oh, again. Wow. And, um, you know... That lasted about a year, and then when I got to Michigan, I encountered this group called the Creative Arts Orchestra, 
which was a fully improvised uh, 30-person ensemble. And I joined that group, and through that, through improvisation, started playing again, playing drum set. And then through that group, met Regina and Jason. And um, this also aligned with sort of geopolitical changes. 9-11 obviously happened, and that made me start to question music's role in political discourse. Um, I had always been really interested in, in political music and the relationship of music and politics, but at that moment, it felt much more immediate and much more necessary to really, um, in a certain way for me to really decide what how I thought the two mixed, if they should or should not or whatever. It just felt like something I needed to sort out for myself as a composer. Yeah. Um, and so originally the group sort of started as a question saying, okay, so here, here are these two things. Do they mix? How do they mix? What's the deal, you know, with them? And so Regina, Jason, and I played together for about a year and a half, you know, up until we all graduated and moved to different cities <clears throat> and um, explored a lot of, you know, democratic composition, group composition, things like that. That was um, really fun and really, really, you know, I don't think that the music we made is necessarily what I would identify with now, personally, uh, as a composer or performer. But it was a really important process and really important starting point for me. Um, after leaving Ann Arbor, the group had a little bit of a hiatus. I lived in Boston for a while, for about a year, and s still toyed with the idea of starting, a, reforming the group um, but I sort of knew that when I was in Boston, it was transitional, and I would be—I was applying to PhD programs, so uh, I didn't know where I was going to end up. So I waited. Uh, in 2004, I had just started at Princeton, and decided that it was time—you know—now basically in the New York community, um, although I was living in Princeton, New Jersey, it was time to start it up again and time to take up those questions once again. So at that point, I met uh, Eileen Mack, who is the co-director of the ensemble, um, and we started putting this thing together. And, you know, it had a sort of a strange um, growing process. We had a lot of players come and go in the early days. And, you know, I think because a lot of it was about asking questions as group leader, I wasn't coming in and saying, oh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this. It's going to be this thing. It was a little bit more like, well, let's hear these, hear these things. It was a very grad school <laughs> kind of attitude. Here. <laughs> here are these things. Let's explore this. Let's find out what's interesting about them. And, you know, it took a while for that to settle in. And I feel now that with the lineup we have now and the repertoire we're playing and now this record, I feel like it's, it's finally a sort of, uh, I don't know if I would say a statement of purpose, but it's a statement of um, findings, I guess you could say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, when I hear the entire album as a, you know, in, in its entirety, um, it really does seem like uh, a kind of artistic musical statement, almost sort of like uh, saying, you know, this is our sound. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's very cohesive. Oh, great, <laughs> dude! I'm is a jet taking off from your living room? I know. No, I'm. <laughs> you know, it's 
Is it, sorry, <laughs> it's a truck truck driving. By. That's okay. Uh, the same thing will probably happen on my end, right? <laughs> um, but, but uh, no, I mean, I, I'm I'm glad that you find that the record holds together. I think making a record like this is very difficult because, you know, the group has never been. I mean, in a in a way, the group has has always been about my own music and always been about my own questions. In terms of this exploration and and trying to decide you know, for me, really, what the relationship of music and politics is. But as an ensemble, as, a, as an organization, it's not just about my music. It doesn't only play my music. And so, you know, if it were to be a group that played my music, it would have an advantage because it would be inherently unified, right? Because every piece would be by the same composer. Right. In this case, we have composers as varied as Oscar Bettison and Stefan Weissman and Pat Muchmore and Missy Mazzoli and Caleb Burns and, and me who are all very different composers. I think all very good composers, um, or we wouldn't have put them on the disc, you know, but I think um, the, the the trick, and I think Lawson White had a lot to do with this, and the way we approached the works in terms of processing, did a lot of drum processing, for example, on Missy's piece, and mm-hmm. uh, programmed all the drums for Stefan's piece, um, that create a, a more unified sound world, first of all, and and I also think, for me at least, there's a narrative. I mean, I wouldn't say that the record is intended to be programmatic, but I feel that the order of the pieces, in addition to considering their harmonic um, relationships, as you would in any sort of programming situation, um, really, I think, take the listener or a sort of imagined protagonist through a path of, of questioning and exploration. Uh, and again, this is just my own personal take on it. I don't think anybody else would necessarily... Um, uh, say that this was the plan or anything, but um, you know the order. The order is is very intentional in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, I don't know. So you're saying it's more of a because when you have a, a record like this with um, every different piece. Uh, sorry, every piece is uh, by a different composer. Um, yeah. Like you said. Um, Somehow, I don't know uh, how, but uh, somehow, even though you're right in that every composer is different, there's still this uh, sense of oneness or same. You, you know what I mean? Through, yeah. the, through the whole thing, uh, that's that's not easy to do. I mean, when you're, uh, you know, you've got all these different pieces by all these different people, right? Um, so. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about a little bit about the uh, performers on uh, in the yes, group. Um, the uh, I have to say, man, um, you've really it seems like uh, found all the right people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I think also part of the early, more tumultuous period of you know, like we would we would say have a a violinist or whatever uh, who just wasn't really. The people who have been with the group from the beginning, who were the right people, we always knew when the person maybe wasn't quite right, and I think they may have known as well. And so there was a natural turnover. And yeah, now that we've found these people, I feel really great about about the group, you know. And and the group is, you know, again, it's not just about my music. It's also just not you know about me as a performer. I mean, it is really about the members of the group, you know, Newspeak wouldn't be Newspeak, um, or it would be a different Newspeak with a different violinist or a different uh, clarinetist or a different singer, you know, I mean, it's, um, the sound, our sound is 
is is because of who uh, our members are. Yeah, yeah, and also I get um, the strong feeling that it's it's also about kind of your generation. This is our, you know, this generation's music. This is what we're doing. Yeah. Is that yeah? Um, well, and it's in in a way, it's taking a certain, it's taking a stand because I think you know we're associated with this indie classical scene, you know. Um, but you know, as one as one review of our record noted, there's this tendency among the the quote unquote indie classical to be really sentimental or to be very uh, sonically polite and i and i think there's a place for that and i'm not in, at all intending to criticize that but for me i always felt that that wasn't really my thing you know that wasn't my yeah. the way that that it manifested for me because i'm coming from you know a background with heavy metal and industrial and these these darker heavier sonic palettes and so i feel like this record is an is is um, in a way, a certain kind of statement that you know this is also part of what has become known as indie classical. This is just as much a part of that as anything else would you know that would be considered. Um, and that was really important to me to sort of sort of put a foot down and say th- this is you know like I said just as much of just a much uh, just as much a part of that world as something that is perhaps more or let's say something that's less aggressive or less heavy or less um serious or whatever you know again not intending to criticize any 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 other artists yeah 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 um and uh, your group is definitely a part of this uh movement of i think uh you know younger classical musicians and composers that were all weaned on rock basically yeah um, like, uh, I did another episode on, uh, Kevin Gallagher's group, electric company. Oh, yeah. They're, they're a similar sure. kind of, you know, group in the same movement. Um, yeah, and, Jim, um, Jim Johnson is actually the keyboardist for new speak and electric company. So yeah, this guy is like, uh, the new He's music everywhere. all-star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's I mean, also a, plays with fireworks, right? And, fireworks. Um, yeah plays with fireworks and Proteus and he's, he's all over the place. Also a really good composer. Um, need to get him writing for, for new speak soon. And yeah. And you know, that's another thing that you'll find when you look at the roster. I mean, Eileen Mack, who's the co-director of new speak also plays with Missy Mazzoli's Victoire. Kayla Burens also plays with it's not you, it's me and alarm will sound. Um, you know, it, there is a lot of, <clears throat> and I think this is equally exciting and challenging it just in terms of scheduling, you know, everyone is playing with everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really I'm I'm glad you said that because I think it's an important point for listeners of this podcast who you know might not be aware of all this. Um, is that it's not you know just sort of these uh, few isolated groups here and there. It's um, kind of a a movement of a lot of different groups, and there's a lot of cross pollination between yeah. those groups. And, um, and I think there's also a sense of community. I mean, I know Newspeak for, since about 2007, 2008, we've been really focusing our, our live performances um, more as social events than as specific concerts or, or traditional concerts. You know, we don't tend to play in traditional spaces in part because of our of, of um, 
there's a truck passing again. In part, in part because of our volume, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, one of the things that we've done now for the past two years is the New Music Bake Sale, um, which is organized, co-organized with Ensemble Desad and the Exapno New Music Center uh, in Brooklyn. And this is an event. I think we had t- uh, ten or twelve performers last year. We had about fifty groups from around the city with tables, you know, sharing either giving out merchandise or selling merchandise or selling baked goods or raising funds or whatever they want to do. And it's really, I think, important that once a year there's an event that says, you know, we're all in this together. And, you know, the fact that we all play in each other's groups kind of <laughs> solidifies this even more. But I think it's important to have an event that's that's more generally a, a fun event. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, that's you know. such a, a cool idea. And um, listeners, you know, if you're in the New York area, go to the New Music Bake Sale, you know, buy some cookies, buy some cakes, listen to some music. Yeah. It's a fun It's a fun event. It's definitely a fun event. And, um, you know, we've done, like I said, we've done two, done it for two years and we're, we're gearing up for um, year three uh, next fall. So it should be really great. It should be really great. Awesome. Well, okay, let's let's get into the music that's on the CD. Great. So we're going to start. I'm just going to go basically in a CD order here. Okay. Uh, we're going to start with the first piece by Oscar Bettison called B&E with Aggravated Assault. Yeah. Um, now, Oscar uh, was born in uh, 1975 in Jersey, the other Jersey. Um, the United right, the original. <laughs> the original one. Um, and, uh, he studied with, I was letting a truck go by. Um, we, uh, (laughs) he studied with, uh, Simon Bainbridge, Louis Andreessen and Steve Mackey, just, uh, a few to mention a few. Um, I don't know anything you want to say about Oscar. Well, Oscar is an old friend of mine. He and I were actually roommates at Tanglewood in 2001. So we go way back, um, and actually, this this piece is a piece that had already been sketched, I, I guess you could say, or written in a different a different version had been written back in two thousand one. And the end of the summer, we parted ways and exchanged CDs of our you know of our music. And I heard this piece and you know had it on my iPod. And you know, this is back when the group didn't really exist yet and whatever. And then years went by. We both ended up at Princeton sort of rediscovered the piece and remember was on the train into New York for something and just thought, oh man, this would be a great piece for Newspeak. And so we had an opportunity, uh, we were playing on the Full Force Festival, which is uh, John Zorn curated at Tonic, when Tonic still existed, and we wanted to do some premieres. So I talked to Oscar and said, you know, would you be willing to, you know, thinking he would just do a straight arrangement you know, for a slightly different instrumentation, he ended up completely recomposing the thing for us. And it's become a piece that we've played. I mean, we've played it a ton. We love playing it. Um, it's been really exciting to have the opportunity as a performer to play a piece that at first was impossibly hard to, to do. You know, there are these sudden tempo changes. Right. It's really fast. It's really difficult. Um, everyone's playing in unison in these really loud contexts where it's difficult to hear. It's been really exciting to, over the five years or whatever, to get to a point where it feels kind of relaxed <laughs> to play now. <laughs> uh, and one of the things we talk about a lot in rehearsals, we need to we need it to not feel too relaxed because 
you know, it's called BNE with aggravated assault. I mean, come on, it's got to feel aggressively, you know, so it's been fun. It's been a fun process and we love, we love playing it. And I think, you know, I think this recording is really nice because you can actually hear everything in terms of counterpoint and evolving lines that are harder to hear live because it's, it's just so live. It's a little bit more of a wall of sound. Yeah, yeah. Which is also which is also nice in its way. <laughs> um well I wanted to point out a few things uh about this excerpt before I play it and maybe just ask you a couple questions about it. Sure. Um first thing that I uh wanted to point out that I really love about this piece and in, in Oscar's um skill as a composer, uh is like uh these sound combinations that he comes up with. So when he'll combine these uh, different instruments to mm-hmm. create new sound, you know, kind of like a, you know, like a great painter, you know, he can take these uh, primary colors of the different instruments to combine them to to make these really cool new sounds. Yeah. And uh, for instance, uh, this sort of melodic line will come out. Um, and I think it's electric guitar paired with um, keyboard. Is that right? This is the dee da dee da da dee yeah, da yeah 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 I think that's it's, so it's bass clarinet with crazy tremolo crazy vibrato and then electric guitar with a really whacked out effect on it and then violin and cello um, I don't think there's actually any keyboard in it but the the guitar maybe sounds like a uh, a Leslie sort of speaker effect oh you're talking no okay that's that's after i'm talking about so um oh, okay, okay so yeah you're talking about when the the part where this the uh, slow low clarinet comes in with the mm. repeated figure and then yes. the electric guitar gets added onto it and then the bass clarinet right, gets right. added onto it so before that um during the 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 busier sort of rock out part before it um, okay. there, there's kind of a, a mel- melody sort of above the rest, which I think is electric uh, guitar. Dee, do, dee, uh, yes, dee, thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's that's um, bass, clarinet, and violin, electric violin. That's electric violin. Okay. Yeah, it's actually electric five string violin because the low he's got the low. Uh, I think it's low E, so the violin string is tuned down a third. So Kayla plays it on a five string. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so let's, let's check that out. This is um, the first excerpt of the show, Oscar Bettison, B&E with Aggravated Assault. <laughs> Thank you. 
right. So that was B&E with Aggravated Assault by Oscar Bettison. And we're going to move from that to Stefan Wiseman's I would prefer not to. I mean, uh, I love the placement of this on the CD. I love that it comes right after the Bettison because it's such yeah. a contrast yeah. um, to the Oscar Bettison. You know, the Bettison was just like the title suggested, uh, very rock-oriented, very aggressive. This, uh, by contrast, is lush, you know, reverberates, mm-hmm. almost orchestral yeah. sounding. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit about Stefan. Um, he's, uh, I guess, our second Jersey boy, but the other Jersey, um, the newer one. Uh, right. He, he uh, studied with Joan Tower, David Lang, and st- also Steve Mackey, um, uh, to name a few. And, and uh, yeah, just anything you want to say about Stefan? Well, Stefan, you know, I met Stefan through Princeton. He's another Princeton uh, Princeton guy, which is where he worked with Steve, I'm guessing. And I just really, I've always really loved his music. I've always really appreciated Stefan's patience. Uh, I think he's a really patient composer, which is rare, you know. He's willing to just sort of have an idea and let the idea live and exist. Mm-hmm. And I heard this song, I, again, this, is, this was originally for voice and piano. Um, originally, the... the song version was commissioned by Sequitur, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, um, is it, okay, sorry. <laughs> I, heard, I heard static or something. Yeah, that was, um, I think my ice maker in my refrigerator. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it was originally for voice and piano and I heard it and I really appreciated the approach to the political you know, it's not, I think it's an extremely political piece. And I think it, it calls into question, much as the original, the Melville um, Bartleby does, the, in a way, the, it, it, to interpret politically, it, it's, it's the potential cost of absolute pacifism. And it just reminds me of a, it was a sign, I think it was a sign from Paris before sort of leading up to World War II. And it says something like, what will the pacifists do when Hitler attacks? Hmm. Which is, I thought was really intense, first yeah. of all. And, and for, at the time, put things in a different light for me. That said, oh, well, yeah, that's, you know, that's a complex thing. And so what I love about Stefan's piece is that through, through relatively simple means, I mean, the mel- melody is basically one repeated pitch. I mean, the pitch changes, but the line is just repeated notes. There's one short sentence I would prefer not to is the only text. Um, you know, through this relatively simple creation, you know, or, or system, something really complex is introduced and conveyed. And I've just always, I've always loved that about the piece. And, um, and yeah, it's funny. I mean, this is another piece. One of the things, again, about playing with a group for so long and playing the same pieces, this is another piece that we've played you know, probably 20 or 30 times at least, um, is that it's evolved over the years. Originally, uh, Stefan didn't compose any drums to it. And as we played it, you know, it started out not having any drums. And then eventually I said, you know, 
I'm hearing this kind of portishead head thing. You <laughs> That's know. exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. I was like, would you, would you be open to us trying that? And Stefan being Stefan uh, and being wonderful said, oh yeah, that sure, you know. And he liked it, and so we've kept it in. And now on the record, when we do it live, uh, when we've done it live in the past, I've played drums acoustically. Now we're doing, we're actually going to try start to start using these programmed tracks live um, to be more authentic to the record. But yeah. Um, yeah, and so it's evolved, and and the the recorded version I think of for me is is where is kind of the result of the the collaborative process over the years. That's really cool. I mean, um, that's definitely in the excerpt that I pulled. Um, oh, and uh, the trance, yeah, when that trance like beat comes in or the the programmed drums. Mm-hmm. Oh man, it works so well with the piece. Uh, I well, never th- would have guessed that it was sort of an uh, sort of collaborative afterthought. Yeah, it just you know, and I think it's I think it's really important for composers, and I love that Stefan and ev- pretty much everyone we work with really, it, it's they enter into this as as a process of possibly discovering or rediscovering aspects of the piece. I think you know I tend to enter compositions in a similar way when I'm going into a performance setting where, you know, if, if performers have suggestions, you know, you should at least, I mean, obviously you should at least listen to them, but often I think they're going to be, they could be really great. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, and I've seen this time and time again, where um, with my own work, with just speaking with other composers and other performers, where the result of that partnership is really vital. And, um, or, or the relationship is really vital, and I think the results can be really exciting.
right, we just heard I Would Prefer Not To by Stefan Wiseman, and we're going to move on to David T. Little and his Sweet Light Crude. So um, I'm just going to let you talk about yourself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, just t- just basically tell us a little bit about um, about yourself, about your musical background, you know, kind of kind of what got you into uh, pursuing a career in, uh, classical music and yeah. Well, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, um, in a, you know, a, a family of artistically inclined people, but not of any professional artists. You know, my father played guitar and drums and was sort of an, uh, amateur musician. Um, and then my mother was, um, was a dancer and they actually met doing a production of West Side Story, you know, so musical theater was something that I had grown up with and just always was, I, I was always a very creative kid and I've, I guess I, I, and I was always a very musical kid. I played drums from the age of eight, um, but didn't, I, I didn't really read. I learned in a fife and drum corps in New Jersey. So I was learning everything by ear and playing everything from memory from the age of eight till around 18. Um, when I really got serious about music as the thing I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 15, I went to see The Nightmare Before Christmas, the Tim Burton film, and for the first time realized that a composer, that composers still existed <clears throat> and that uh, it could be a job, that you could, do, you could write music and you know, make a living doing it. Um, theoretically, at least. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, at that point, at 15, I said, I'm going to be a composer. That's that. This the score, the Danny Elfman score, just moved me in such a way that I just decided with a completely uninformed perspective that this is what I was going to do. And from that point on, that's all I was really interested in, in hearing about or doing. Um, again, I still couldn't read music, so I decided to... Uh, I just I just kind of worked on it. I don't know. I I um one of the big first things I did. Everyone, all these interviews I was reading kept talking about this piece, the Rite of Spring, how important it was and great it was. So I bought a score, Dover score of the Rite of Spring, and a recording. And one of the first things I tried to do as a self-taught musician or composer was to try to read all the way through the Rite of Spring while listening to the recording to just follow the score and get through it. Yeah. And this, of course, took quite a while <laughs> right at, at least a year before i could get through the last movement of that with you know and actually know where things were um and follow along but then i went to college i went to susquehanna university and uh, originally as a music education major but that didn't last very long um i don't think i was destined to be uh, a music teacher in the high school sense and uh, very quickly turned to composition started studying very seriously and uh, and changed my major to percussion performance and just uh, wrote like crazy for four years of undergrad. And by the time I graduated, I think I had written about 25 pieces or some ridiculous thing oh, Nice <laughs> of, of really varying quality, obviously, some really terrible, some that I, I wouldn't let any actually be performed now, but some I go back and listen to and think, oh, that's, you know, not bad. Um, but then after graduating, I, I was accepted to Michigan for grad school and 
and to Tanglewood for the summer festival. And from then on, it's just been sort of full speed ahead. Um, it was really a matter of jumping in head first and not really knowing how deep the water was, but, um, and not necessarily being able to swim. <laughs> right. But, you know, I, it was a, it was a situation where I had a teacher who said, I was very stressed out about changing my major for music education because that was always spoken of in my family as well. At least you'll have a backup thing right, that you right. do, you know, which I think is a really stand, you know, I think that's often how it's, it's sometimes talked about. And I had a, a, my composition teacher said, well, you know, sometimes the best thing is to not have any backup plan because then you have to make it or, or else, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of, Again, perhaps at the time, maybe not the wisest decision, um, but in a way, I think the right one, where I just said, okay, this is what I'm doing, and sink or swim. Um, and so, you know, I graduated from Susquehanna, went to Tanglewood, was the youngest one in the class, which had its own sort of advantages and stresses associated with it. Went uh, from there to Michigan. I studied with Michael Doherty and William Volcom at Michigan. And really was just there. And that's where, when we met, was um, during that time when I was at Michigan. Um, and as I said, I had stopped playing drums at this point and then restarted playing drums. And started to go through a little bit of a, a mini artistic crisis where I said, okay, I've been writing this music. I've been listening to my teachers and, and looking at scores and yeah. writing what what I felt was quote unquote the right kind of music you know the kind of music that wins you awards the kind right. of music <laughs> grad school music yeah grad school music sure and you know and I th I'm really happy that I wrote those pieces but they feel very much rooted in my education as opposed to rooted in my artistic life mm -hmm. so I uh, finished at Michigan and uh, ended up at Princeton and my first year at Princeton I was still struggling with this question of the grad school music thing. And um, by about my second year, I just said, okay, look, you've got all of these influences that you've grown up with. You know, you played in this fife and drum corps, which is a weird thing. You played in a big band. You played uh, in a rock band. You grew up listening to musical theater. You understand drama and theater in, in this sort of way. You were in plays and, um, and just made the decision that... And I think this this actually goes back to what we were saying before about the structure of the record. Um, I just decided that whatever musical style or genre or idea or whatever that felt like the right way to go at this at the time I was composing, I was going to honor it. And at least if I even if I didn't end up keeping it, I was going to use it. I was going to put it down on the page and let it have its own life. You know. And the first piece I did this with was Soldier Songs, which is a 50-, 60-minute uh, one-man opera that Newspeak also plays. And the result was really exciting. The result was music that I think succeeded dramatically in a way that, I, that my earlier works weren't because they were so restricted in terms of style or genre or whatever. And, um, and it, was just, it was really sort of reinvigorating uh, my my, it just got me excited again about writing. I was kind of in a lull, and it got me really jazzed up again. Yeah. 
And so right after that, I wrote Sweet Light Crude, which is in a way um, full of blatant references <laughs> to music I like, music I love, music I grew up with. It's um, an homage to the power ballad in a certain way. It's an homage to goth rock in a certain way. It's an homage to um, dramatic music in a certain way. It's just, it's, it's the first, you know, Soldier Songs is an hour long. So movements were um, usually restricted to the styles that they were in. Whereas in Sweet Light Crew, because it's only, what, seven, eight minutes long, it was all there. It was all together. It was all mashed up into some sort of new thing. Um, and I, you know, I'm really, I'm still really proud of it. I'm still really, uh, I think it, um, it might be the f- the first really concise and clear statement of who I am as a composer. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, dude, you should be proud of it. It's an awesome piece. Thank you. And um, we're going to break tradition a little bit and uh i'm gonna play this entire track it's not this is not an excerpt i'm gonna play the whole thing uh and one reason i wanted to do this was that i wanted listeners to really hear that this was much more than just a simple rock song i I wanted them to hear just how it progresses you know from beginning to end Mm. and like you were talking about um it's just a collection of so many different things, but I think yeah. uh, really put together well to that, you know, just like you said, that it forms this new kind of thing. I mean, it's it's something that's, I think, grounded in rock and classical music, but has, you know, all these other things to it. I think it also has a a very heavy sort of progressive rock sound as well. Yeah, um, which is funny because, I, you know, growing up, I was never a prog kid. I was never really into that stuff. And I tried, I would go buy records and especially when I was trying to figure out what it meant to be a composer, I'd say, Oh, well I've heard about this group or that group. Something about it made me uncomfortable. Um, but around the time I was writing this piece, I sort of, I rediscovered, um, I said, what was that? Maybe return to forever. Um, you or know some of the Madhav Vishnu stuff, maybe, and I was that, like, "Yeah, this is great." That's that's one thing I actually wrote down in my notes is in, in the middle of the piece when you have um, this uh, these little interjections. It's like electric guitar and um, I, th- I think bass or keyboard. Yeah, cello, cello and organ. Yeah, and they're doing these sort of um, little sort of things. It totally reminded me of like you know seventies Aldi Miola or something. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, when you get towards the end, you know, uh, when the sort of, like you said, power ballad aspect becomes, uh, more apparent, you know, it, for me, it had little tinges of maybe like some dream theater or something, which I love all this stuff. This is like a total compliment for, for for me. Um, (laughs) I don't know about you, but, um, well, it's funny. Dream Theater is one of the groups. It's it's that's they've been mentioned a lot in reviews of the record, and I actually they're not a band I actually like. <laughs> it's sort of funny. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. It sounds like Dream Theater. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it doesn't sound like Dream Theater, but I mean, you know, if you if you've heard a lot of Dream Theater, you can kind of hear the parallels. Right. But right. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I but I you know I I understand you know 
people that don't like them, I, I, I understand why they don't. But anyway, sure, we, sure. we don't have to go into that. But right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but it's, ba- it's made me think that I need to go back and listen to it again, actually. So that's actually on my, uh, my agenda for the coming weeks, just to go back and rediscover Dream Theater. So maybe, so who knows? Who knows what will happen? Yeah, yeah, who knows? Um, well, uh, oh, did I want to say anything about this? Anything else? Um one I thing could, I, I wanted could. to oh, – I'm sorry. One, one thing I wanted to mention about uh, – another thing I noticed about the record and I wanted to ask you about because you are a percussionist and you do play drums on this song mm-hmm. uh, or on this piece. Um, one thing I noticed is that the the percussion sounds, the drum sounds in particular uh, for the different pieces, the Weissman, your piece, and uh, Missy Mazzoli's piece mm-hmm. um, all have – really distinctive different sounds i mean when you when you usually hear a record you know the drum sound is usually always exactly the same on every track um and here you know you've taken these drum sounds and really tailored them uh, tailored them to the individual pieces and uh you know you're a percussionist you know you obviously have a special ear for these sounds um uh was this a i don't know any special uh, effort went into this or just as, as, um, as I don't know, is it just a natural outcome I just, of different pieces? Well, I just, I think partially that my favorite, um, all of my favorite music processes drums really heavily. Um, and so I, I, I don't know, going into it every time I've made a record, you know, just as a drummer with, with a rock band or whatever, I've always been really, I've really wanted to deal with processing. I've really wanted to make the drums, you know, fit the song as much as, you know, a guitarist would use specific pedals for this, you know, certain songs. It never really made sense to me that, well, you have your drum set and it's the same throughout the whole record because no one else is doing that. You know, the keyboardist isn't doing that. Even the singer isn't necessarily doing that with vocal processing, which we also did on this, in this record, you know? And so it just, it just felt like the right thing to do, for me as a, I mean, as a listener in a way. Um, and then, you know, I mean, Nine Inch Nails is a huge influence on me. And so the, just the, the drum sounds that you get from the way Reznor records and processes things, uh, you know, that's just something that's always in my, uh, in my ear and on my mind. Okay. So let's listen to it. The entire track of David T. Little's Sweet Light Crude.
you know, this piece was a new, you know, I said aesthetically and all this, it was a, sort of a new place for me. But it really comes out of my studying um, past political thinkers and, and artistic political thinkers. And in particular, I think Jonathan Swift is really important to this and his work, A Modest Proposal. Um, and just the use of, of satire and the use of exaggeration to make a point without being bombastic or didactic about it. And I, I think there there are moments in this that I still feel like are a little that are pretty direct, but I'm I'm okay with that. Um, but I, I was thinking about you know dependency on oil and all of this, and I thought, well, why not why not write a breakup song, you know? Mm-hmm. Why not write a breakup song about a tortured relationship um, to to this to oil personified and. Um, and so that's that's what it is. But you know, I think um, no, I think politically it sort of it lays out a certain map for how most of the pieces on the record deal with the political question, which is not, I think, in, in any case, I don't think any of the pieces are especially direct about you know this is not a, a rage against the machine record for example it's <laughs> right. a little it's a little more subtle in terms of message but i think as a result it's a little um hopefully a little more poignant potentially yeah yeah okay um yeah thank you for for interjecting that um sure uh okay so let's move on to the next one uh the track in spite of all this by missy mazzoli um one thing I wanted to kind of mention just to the to the audience, um, and I'll put links to all the composers in the show notes, but um, you guys should all go to their websites because uh, David and everybody else on this record, is they're just all super busy. I mean, they're doing way too much stuff for me to mention <laughs> <laughs> on the way show. Way too much stuff for, for us to manage, I think, in some right. cases. <laughs> right. Um, but Missy is uh, – she studied with uh, David Lang, Louis Andreessen, just a couple to mention. Um, she actually was I, – I didn't realize this until I went to her website. Um, she was the executive director of the, uh, the Mata Festival. Right. And now you are. And now I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Missy and I go way back. We met um, – I think it was in 2003. We both received the Charles Ives Scholarship at the American Academy of Arts and Letters together. And that was the first time we met. And then, um, you know, I mentioned, you know, when I came to New York, I met Eileen Mack and we started a new speak up again. I met Eileen through Missy Mazzoli and Judd Greenstein. We all went to see Michael Gordon's Decasia together at uh, uh, St. Anne's Warehouse. And Eileen was there too. And uh, it's sort of this moment where I, I connected with almost all the people I still work with. In a, in a weird way. So that was a really unexpectedly significant night um, for me artistically and otherwise. And then Missy Judd and I went on to form Free Speech Zone Productions, which was a production company that lasted, I guess we were together for about three, three and a half years. And then we decided we, you know, it was just too much for us to do with all the other things we were interested in. Um, but we organized a tour with Newspeak and Now Ensemble, Judd's group. And Missy's piece, um, in spite of all this, was written for Newspeak for that tour. It was one of the first pieces written for us. 
And uh, again, it goes way back. We've played it a whole lot. And um, yeah, it's been great. It's funny. I mean, Miss, Missy and I have also had, we both had chamber operas commissioned for the, to be companions to Ravel last February. So we sort of have these, these strange parallels. And now the Mata thing where um, she's, she's stepped down and I'm, I just took over as executive director. So right. it's, it's cool. It's a fun, it's, it's good to have friends. <laughs> who, uh, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean that's another thing um, from this this CD that I get uh, is that I don't know that that it somehow comes across you know that um, you all gel you're all in this together you're all friends you're all you, you know what I mean it's just sort of yeah. a, a a nice uh, just sort of general vibe on the CD um, cool uh, yeah this uh, okay so her piece you know um, in spite of all this. Um, yes. I don't know what what about this piece. I mean, uh, uh, about the title in spite of all this, because there's no uh, sung text to this right. piece. Right. So um, I don't know. Can, you want to say a little bit about it, or oh, it's for Miss, Missy's piece for me is is very much about hope and about finding hope despite really challenging circumstances. Uh, I know it's um was sort of a um, it's a chamber version of her orchestral piece, These Worlds and Us, which. Um, has done really well. And it's, you know, one of the things about being in a group like this, it's great to commission pieces that then go on and get played by other people. You know, I mean, Oscar's piece has been played a bunch. This piece by Missy has been played a bunch. The piece by Judd Greenstein that isn't unfortunately on this record, but that's been played a bunch. Um, what, um, what they don't like for Chuck D. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's a cool, um, cool thing to see these things that you had a part in creating go out into the world. Oh, definitely. Um, and uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I was just, so. But with with Missy's piece, it's all. It just really is about hope for me. And I know that when these worlds in us is more specifically about her father and her father's experience in Vietnam. And so I think that this piece is also related to that in a certain way, um, but I think less, perhaps less explicitly. Yeah, and um, this. Uh excerpt that I pulled is kind of from the uh, the middle of the, actually I pulled two different excerpts but the first one I'm going to play um, is from the middle of the piece and um, you know breaks into this kind of groove with this uh, uh, violin melody um, mm-hmm. really catchy uh, I have to say um, if I l- listen to the whole record this is the melody that, that I can't get yeah. out of my head yeah 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 really cool really catchy melody um and it's sort of um kind of interrupted by these uh small swells that lead up to these kind of mini crescendos um that that will then you know kind of uh change the key or or change it up somehow um uh, almost kind of like in a little sort of developmental way um and uh yeah, let's just listen to this this excerpt. Cool.
So that was the first excerpt from uh, Missy Mussoli's In Spite of All This. And uh, the second one that I pulled was kind of towards the end of the piece. And I pulled it because it's just this little, uh, almost like anomaly in the piece, but it, it works really well. It's kind of this little aside for the piano. Um, and, uh, well, mainly for the piano, the other instruments are, are also playing as well. Um, that leads to kind of a, uh, what I would call maybe the climax, um, towards the end of the piece. Um, uh, do you, do you know what part I'm talking about? Um, I'm just about to look at it. This is the um, three fifty-eight, or no, this is six to six. That's right. Six minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's just kind of just this little nice little aside for, uh, for the pianist, uh, which the piano comes to the fore just for a little bit. I just thought it was nice. Yeah. It's funny. The piano, I mean, Missy's a pianist and, um, you know, it's so nice. We, we, we recorded this record on at Clinton Studios in New York, which uh, has since been closed, which is a real shame because it was this gorgeous big room. It's one of the biggest rooms on the East Coast. And because of our size and our volume and that we wanted to be able to get a lot of separation, we needed to have a room that size. But this room also happened to have the, the piano that was played on Kind of Blue. <laughs> and, wow. on, on, and on one of the... Um, the um, Glenn Gould's Goldberg Variations recordings. So it was an amazing piano. <laughs> so know? this this piano had been touched by Glenn Gould and Bill, Bill Evans. Yes. Wow. Yeah, and our that, pianist, that's crazy. Yeah, our pianist was kind of in heaven. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I know when we play live, we don't, because, you know, miking the piano has proven in the past to be very difficult given the overall volume. And it's very temperamental depending on the hall and things like that. We, we tend to use keyboard which I, I know always breaks Missy's heart, I think, a little bit. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was great to be able to play, you know, play the piece on, with this amazing instrument. And, and yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things that I love about this piece is, is it, I mean, it's really dense. It's a really dense piece, which makes it tricky um, to execute and tricky to, to rehearse because there's just so much going on all the time. But again, there's, and I think Sweet Like Crude, I, I like to think of, or I hope is, has this quality too, that there's, there, because there's a lot going on, you can listen to it so often and always get something new from it. And yeah, I, I know going back to um, Danny Elfman's work, when I first, when I discovered Danny Elfman's film scores, I very quickly discovered his band Oingo Boingo. And their last studio record is the same way. It's just, there's just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Um, same thing with the Trent Reznor stuff. You know, there's just, it's just, right. you know, it's so deep with material. And so, um, you know, I think there's always something more to get from, from a lot of these pieces, but from Missy's piece in particular.
it's so it's 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 so cool and funny that you mentioned you know that uh, one of your early inspirations was, um, you know, Danny Elfman and Nightmare, Nightmare mm. Before Christmas. It's cool, and it, I'm actually uh, drinking my tea right now from a Nightmare <laughs> Before Christmas mug. Nice, nice. <laughs> um, all right, so let's move on to uh, to the next piece, um, Pat Muchmore. And uh, I wanted to mention just a little bit about him. You know, I went to his website uh, to do a little bit of research on him. And uh, I have to say, he's the only composer I've seen where he actually says, oh, shit, in his bio. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he also reveals that his real name is Felicio Torres, the greatest lover in all of Mexico. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I have to say, you know, yeah. If Pat is listening to this, uh, I just have to mention I, I really appreciated the bio. Um, I have to read a lot of them for you know <laughs> and, uh, when I yeah. do this show. But uh, he is the uh, co-founder and also cellist and singer in a group called Antisocial Music, um, yes. which is another group you know out there doing uh, similar things. Yeah, they they're, they've been around for about ten years. This is actually their ten year anniversary. So happy anniversary. Antisocial. Um, Indeed. Yeah, they're they're really great. We did a show with them. Our, we did a big election night spectacular back in uh, 2008, which was one of the scariest shows we've ever done because it was either going to be really great or really depressing. <laughs> and <laughs> um, and we had to, you know, in getting the programming ready, we had to have. It was basically we had twice as many pieces ready to go as we normally would, and I was just calling them based on how the results were going. You know, so uh, it was a really interesting process and really, like I said, kind of scary, but ultimately really, really fun and really exciting. Um, and uh, if you go to our YouTube, there's this, our YouTube channel, there's a great um, clip of us playing Caleb's piece as Obama comes up to give his acceptance speech. And it's just really beautiful. Just the music really, it's, it was as, as if it was written to be this sort of triumphant uh, march. You know, it was really nice. Right. Um, but Antisocial played that show with us as well as Corey Dargle, uh, another friend and collaborator of ours. And um, yeah, they're great. They're just like total anarchy, you know, and punk rock, classical, and, you know, Pat's got a mohawk. And, you know, it's, it's just, it just made a lot of sense for him to be involved. He wrote this piece actually for that show. We premiered it on that show and we just played it. And we were just like, this is awesome. We're going to do this a ton. And we've played it. You know, we've played it a whole lot. Um, but Pat's Pat's dissertation is actually on Nine Inch Nails. He's very into um, very into Nine Inch Nails, and I think that comes across in this piece and was very much a part of how we did the production on it. I mean, a lot of the drum processing, a lot of the the layering, and um, there's a whole sound design component that I ended up putting in with um, uh, you know Florian Meyer, who's a, a composer. Uh, who was also at Tanglewood when Oscar and I were there is now a death metal singer in Germany. Oh, awesome. And so we sent him the track and he recorded just some screams and, you know, pig growls and whatever and sent them back to us. And so I feel like this piece, perhaps this and Oscar's piece are the heaviest ones. This is the Mm -hmm. most, I think, directly metal and it's slash industrial. Um, I don't think you're playing that, that excerpt, but... I urge people to uh, buy the CD and check it out. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this piece is called 
Bren Schlutz, is that right? Bren Schlutz, yeah. I cannot pronounce German or French. Uh, and, uh, yeah, this piece, I wanted to read um, from the notes in the CD. And the reason I wanted to, to do that is because this piece is really theatrical and almost really kind of uh, aurally visual, if, if that makes yeah. any sense. Um, yeah. Almost like it should be from Dr. Strangelove the musical or something. <laughs> uh, even though film nerds, I know they didn't have ballistic missiles in that movie. Don't email me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, so from the notes, uh, Bren Schlutz is a German word for the top of a ballistic missile's parabolic arc, specifically the moment when the engine stops burning fuel. For obvious reasons, it's a common term in Thomas Pinchon's Gravity's Rainbow, is that right? From yep. which the work draws its inspiration. Um, my piece with lyrics by Brian Phillips tries to emulate the missile's arc, climaxing at the top of the curve with a brief moment of nearly suspended animation with the words, what goes up must. So um, again, with this one, I pulled a couple of different excerpts. And the first mm. one... Uh, is very basically from the beginning of the piece um, to about uh, a minute or so in. Um, it starts the piece starts really abstract sounding. So the first time I heard it, uh, you know, because we've all heard pieces that are just like this for like fourteen minutes or something. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of what I thought at first right. it was, but then all of a sudden uh, it breaks into this sort of polyrhythmic kind of angular groove. And, yep. in, and then indeed into this very kind of punk rock sounding section where the drums come in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the first excerpt that I'm going to play with this one. Cool. Um, so here it is the very beginning of Bren Schlutz by Pat Muchmore. So we're going to continue with the second excerpt that I pulled from Pat Muchmore's, Muchmore's Bren Schlutz. Um, and I hate him for, for making me continually <laughs> pronounce this German word. Uh, <laughs> this one is at the end, basically towards the end of the piece. Um, and it starts in this moment that I think is supposed to represent the 
the moment when the missile runs out of juice and it's sort of at the very top of its apogee, um, kind of hanging in the air. Um, to me, it sort of sounds like it's this moment that sort of stopped or almost in this super slow motion. Um, and uh, you have this static harmony in the instruments with this kind of, I don't know, sort of angelic floating vocal line above it mm. um, that uh, to me suggests this moment. I mean, I don't know. What's your take on this? Yeah, I love this bar. We also have, I don't know if you can hear it, um, but there's um, Florian Meyer doing overtone singing underneath. <laughs> oh, well, I, yeah, to, totally would not have caught that. But uh, yeah, yeah. He, he, that was something he just sort of added. Again, with Pat, you know, like with Stefan, very open to, I was like, oh, I've got this death metal singer friend. You want him to like scream? And Pat's like, yes. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and then, and then uh, Florian also just on his own added some, um, added this, this sort of Tibetan drone singing underneath and played it for Pat and he thought it was great. And, you know, really great, really great collaborative process with everybody on the record, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. But yeah, I mean, this, I feel like it's a little bit of the fuel has fuel is out and we're sort of now floating, you know, mm-hmm. before we start going down again, which I think is the next section. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say that when it goes to the next section, it's the missile actually plummeting yeah. to earth and I assume exploding at the end. I, um, I, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's hear that. Um, the very end of Pat Muchmore's Brennschlutz. Okay, so the next piece that we're going to talk about is the last piece on the CD, Caleb Burren's Requiem for a General Motors in Janesville, Wisconsin. Um, let's talk a little bit about Caleb first. Sure. Um, multi-instrumentalist, also yes. countertenor singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then listeners, if you want a reminder of what countertenor is, go back and listen to episode five on... Um, downland. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, um, 
his uh, I thought this was really interesting. His he comes from obviously a very musical family. His father played with Ray Charles, Kenny yep. Rogers, yeah. and uh, the Everly Brothers, which I think is uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, with him, with Caleb, just like with everybody else, you know, really go to his website. Um, dude, the dude's way too busy for me to to mention everything. But um, uh, yeah, a little bit about uh, Caleb from you. Uh, yeah, I mean, Caleb's Caleb's great. We love Caleb. <laughs> uh, he's he's um, yeah, he's just kind of insanely talented. You know, and and it's cool with. I mean, I know he does a lot with Alarmal Sound. And, I mean, he, with Alarmal Sound, he plays many instruments. Um, with us, he play. He's played mostly violin, actually, but he also sings. Um, we've done uh, War Pigs. We do War Pigs by Black Sabbath oh, nice. from time to time. And he, uh, until very recently, he was singing that. And now Melly, our our singer, has taken over seeing that. But I'm dying to get. He does this amazing Jello Biafra impersonation. I'm just dying to do some Dead Kennedys <laughs> with him. Um, get him playing guitar and you know but yeah just it's really great guy and I think really thought really deeply about this piece and I know we had talked about him writing it many many years ago and like similar to my own process he kept having these different ideas and he said oh I think I'm going to write this piece oh no I'm going to write this piece and it kept, you know these ideas would sort of come and go and each of them were really exciting and I think could have made great pieces and then uh, he's from Janesville Wisconsin and word came down that General Motors was closing this plant in in Janesville that had been open for about a hundred years and really had spurred the economy of uh, of the town, you know, like Flint's yeah. or any, you know. And so, I think for Caleb, this became very personal in the sense of you know the personal being the political, of course. That you know, suddenly a lot of his friends were getting laid off. And they decided to close the plant right before Christmas, which was just charming. Oh, nice, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it was this, this mix of sort of anger and uh, sadness and this sense that this this um, event could not pass without being acknowledged, you know, that somebody needed to do something. And so he wrote this requiem for this plant. And um, I think hopefully not for the town, but that's a question, you know. Right. Um, yeah, and, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, and that's <laughs> that's yeah. sort of it. It's it's a it's a little bit of a dark way of ending the record, uh, in a way. At the same right. time, you know, I hope you're playing the the section where the Hammond organ comes in. I don't know what else could come after it. In a way, you yeah. know, after that after that organ comes in, you're just like. Oh yeah, this is great. <laughs> you know, this is just right. nothing else. It's sort of a last word, um, and uh, you know, and it's great. It just feels great to play live. It's just complete catharsis. You know. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure. Um, yeah, I actually pulled um, three excerpts from this. I mean, um, two we're gonna talk about, and then the third one, I just pulled that. You know, the end of it to close out the podcast because it, it, it just like you said, you know. It has that feeling of, you know, what could come after this, you know? Yeah. Nothing. At the, um, at the same time, it ends the very end. I don't know if you're playing the very end, but it, it ends with a kind of a question. Yes. Uh, it's not all, I mean, I don't even think it's doom and gloom. I mean, one of the thing that one of the things that Caleb often says about his music and about the work of his duo, It's Not You, It's Me, is that it makes you cry in a good way. 
which I think is this piece. I think is is absolutely that. You know, yeah. Um, there is this mix of of nostalgia. Well, I mean, it's it's the kind of nostalgia. It's there's joy and there's there's sorrow in in within nostalgia, right? So, um, it's just uh. Yeah, it just really captures that in a really, really great way. Right. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of – it's like kind of the same feeling and spirit of this other piece that I really like uh, by Peter Maxwell Davies, a piece uh, for solo guitar called A Farewell to Stromness. I don't know if you've hmm. ever heard this piece. No, I don't know that. But um, he wrote the piece as there's an island um, close to where he was living called Stromness and um, they were planning on turning it into a nuclear waste dump basically. Uh, And um, so he wrote this piece that's very much in the same spirit as this, you know, this kind of uh, almost sadness for this place that's, uh, you know, uh, kind of on the verge of dying in a way. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And um, a very, this very almost processional sort of feel to it as well in this piece. And, and, the other piece yeah um uh so yeah so this piece uh i'm going to actually play the two excerpts that i pulled just back to back because i i pulled an excerpt from the very beginning and then one towards the very end because i wanted the the listeners to hear kind of how the piece progresses because it's it starts with a like an introduction the sort of quiet spare Mm -hmm. uh in my notes i wrote almost ennio maricone like yeah, <laughs> intro, right. um, and or Lynchian. Uh, it, it's been called Lynchian also in some of the reviews. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hear that, and um, then it it breaks into this sort of repeating repeated progression uh, for the electric guitar, and uh, kind of continues on this path and sort of adds you know more instruments, adds more lines, and adds more intensity as the piece progresses. Yeah. Um, so we're going to hear, you know, this, uh, from the first progression, uh, sorry, from the first excerpt to the second excerpt, this, how this piece progresses. Cool. And, and, you know, one thing I'd love to say about this piece, and I think, um, probably, you know, probably influenced my thinking about political music in general, this among, among other pieces, pieces like Attica, uh, by Frederick Jevsky and and coming together. I mean, there's something really powerful, and I think really important as artists in bearing witness to what's happening around us. You know, like this this Davies piece you just mentioned. You know, if not for this piece, who would remember that island potentially? Right. right. Um, similarly, you know, I mean, I learned about the Attica uprising from Frederick Jevsky's piece because. I don't think I was taught it in school, you know, um, things that are important parts of our, uh, cultural inheritance that influence what happens politically happens socially, whatever. I mean, they're important things to bear witness to. And I think, you know, Caleb's piece is, is a great example where it's just, you know, this, this thing happened and it's going to have a big impact. And, you know whether or not we ultimately do anything about it. I mean, what can be done? The plant's closed. I don't know. You know, but um, it's important to the soul of our nation. You know, and our souls as a people um, beyond our nation to acknowledge these things. And you know, like I said, I just I think 
this it's a really great example of that kind of political thinking. Right. Right, exactly. Okay, so let's hear it. These two excerpts that I, that I pulled from Caleb Burns' Requiem for General Motors in Janesville, Wisconsin. Okay, so uh, that was the uh, the end of our excerpts, and uh, I want to thank you very, very much, David, for coming on the show and uh, and talking to us about um, this your CD, Newspeaks, uh, Sweet Lied Crude. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. And uh, before we go, anything that uh, you want to pimp, you want to plug, um, where can people find you, websites, that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, well, Newspeak is newspeakmusic.org. Um, and, you know, the CD is available all kinds of places. We have a Bandcamp site where you can buy it. It can be bought on iTunes, on Amazon, on, you know, all the sort of standard places. There's also New Amsterdam Records. Yeah, New, Am- New Amsterdam Records.com. 
uh, so you can buy it there. Um, you can listen to the whole thing for free on New Amsterdam Records website as well as on Newspeak's record, uh, Newspeak's uh, website. And uh, yeah, pick it up, pick it up. I think um, it's. Uh, I'm really proud of it, and I hope people will really enjoy it. Okay, and then, you know, coming up in if you're in the New York area in February, we've got a bunch of shows. With, uh, we're playing with Eighth Blackbird on the Tune In Festival at the Park Avenue Armory, and we're playing with Darcy James Argue's Secret Society on the Ecstatic Music Festival at Merkin Hall. And uh, the Armory is February 17th, and uh, Merkin Hall is February 24th. Okay. Well, uh, New York area people, watch for that. Watch for the New Music Bake Sale. Um, when it comes up again, what time of year does that happen? Uh, it's usually the fall. We try to make it one of the first events of the year so people can sort of launch their seasons from it. Okay. And uh, again, people pick up this CD. It's uh, uh, <laughs> definitely worth it. And um, really just kind of, in my view, a very exciting, um, I don't know, portent of what's come, you know, what's to come in this century in uh, classical music. So, um, again, thanks, David, uh, for coming on the show. And uh, I'll be back to take out the show uh, right after this. Thanks, David. Great. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this edition of All the Cool Parts Idol. This week on All the Cool Parts Idol, we have a piece of music from composer Carl Schimmel. And uh, Carl sent me a piece for saxophone and piano called Elemental Homunculi. And uh, it's a six-movement work. And uh, I'm going to play the last two movements, so the fifth movement and the sixth movement of this piece. A little bit about Carl first. Um, He's a very distinguished, won many awards, including... um, the Joseph Burns Prize and the 2010 Lee Edelson Award in uh, composition, uh, as well as uh, many others. Um, he attended school at Duke University and Yale University, and he is currently a professor of music at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois. Uh, and you can learn more about Carl uh, by going to his website. That's carlschimmel.com, um, C-A-R-L-S-C-H-I-M-M-E-L.com. And uh, a little bit about his piece, Elemental Homunculi. Uh, this was written in 2005, and the performers here on the recording, um, Timer Sullivan, uh, who is playing tenor saxophone, and Inara Zandmane, I, ho- I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is playing piano. Um and both uh, great, great players. Um, he says a little bit about this work. Um, he says, quote, The idea that a work of music, in particular a short work of music, can represent a persona or personality has been of particular interest to me recently, and these character pieces constitute a part of this stylistic trend. Music is essentially wordless communication, It is accordingly analogous to, in a complex version of, emotional expression, cries, shouts, laughter, etc. So mood and personality, which are nearly indistinguishable from emotional states, lend themselves to musical exploration. These homunculi each have their own individual attitudes and hang-ups, and yet they have been cut from the same theoretical mold, and drawn from my own personality by some obscure and elusive process." 
So um, I'm going to play, like I said, the last two movements of the piece, which are titled Largo Quasi Una Cadenza and Presto. And uh, I'm just going to play these uh, back to back, one uh, right into the other. The Presto, I thought it, um, it would be really appropriate to play these pieces on this show because Carl, uh, he's another um, young composer uh, doing some uh, some similar things to what uh, these composers are doing uh, in um, Newspeak. And the last movement, the Presto, is really kind of exciting, kind of rocking. Um, it really kind of relates to the other music that we've heard on this show. And the fifth movement, the one you're going to hear first, the Largo Quasi Una Cadenza, uh, this is, explores a little more of uh, the acoustic sonic uh, possibilities. And uh, one thing you can listen for that's I think it's really cool is he has the tenor saxophone playing into the piano, and the pianist has the sustain pedal down the whole time. So when the saxophone player plays the notes, they cause the open piano strings to start ringing. And so you can hear these notes that the saxophone just played echoed into, you know, echoed back by the piano very, very faintly. But it's almost like this very beautiful, very ghostly echo of these notes. So here they are, the last two movements of Carl Schimmel's Elemental Homunculi.
performers, performing ensembles, and composers. All the Cool Parts podcast wants your music for All the Cool Parts Idol. If you're an emerging artist with a good quality recording, and you'd like All the Cool Parts podcast to share it with the world, please email sound files and other details to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. Help me share your music with the world. And that is going to do it, guys, for All the Cool Parts number 22. I want to thank again David T. Little for coming on the show and talking to us about uh, his group's new CD by New Speak Sweet Light Crude. And I'll have, of course, links in the show notes to all sorts of stuff. Um, links to David, links to all the composers, uh, link to how you can buy this uh, CD, Sweet Light Crude. Um, I'll also, if possible, put the video that they made for Sweet Light Crude, which is really great, uh, really cool. So uh, hopefully I, I can put that, embed it, you know, in the show notes. Um, so as always, I encourage you guys to send me emails with questions and comments to all the cool parts at gmail.com. You can look at the show notes at all the cool parts.blogspot.com. You can Look at my website at anthonyjosephlandman.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash anthonylandman. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook and generally stalk me all you want. Um, so that's going to do it for this show. And we'll be back next week for another show. Uh, all the cool parts number 23. So until then, I'm going to leave you with the last part of Caleb Burns' Requiem for a General Motors, and we will see you guys next time. Later. Later.